couple things about Mark, uh, just as a review. Uh, Mark possibly was the first gospel written, and uh, written to a Gentile audience, uh, probably maybe the church at Rome. See, some of these things I say probably because it's not known for sure. It was written pretty easily known to a Gentile audience because they have to explain some of the Jewish practices, and Matthew doesn't do that, and neither does Luke. So he explains some of those things, so it means that whoever he's writing to is not familiar that much with Judaism, and so um, he, he doesn't give uh, a, a, a biology of Jesus, a, a, a biographical scratch, not biology, but a biographical scratch of Jesus. He, he just starts with his ministry. So his goal is to let his readers know that Jesus is the Son of God, and, and to a Jewish audience, he'd say he is the Christ, but they want him to know he's the Son of God. So in this, we read the phrase, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. So he's saying that Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, Jesus is uh, Lord. And the first eight chapters, he, he gives his ministry proving through the miracles and through Jesus' teaching, that this is who he is. And then the latter half of Mark, he speaks about him going to the cross. And so Jesus comes, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is presented as, as, as the Son of Man, the Son of God, who's coming to go to the cross. And that's Mark's intent, and he does it very well. And so I mentioned to you last week in the introduction that he uses the word immediately a lot. So he's just moving from one event to another, and it's not always exactly in chronological order. Uh, you can buy a book that's called The Harmony of the Gospels, where they put the Gospels together in a chronological order, and, but it's not necessary to do that, but you can if you want that or read The Life of Christ uh, by someone. So what he's doing is that he's using uh, events in Jesus' life and in his ministry to prove his point. And to, and, and to make his point known that Jesus is God, that he is the Son of Man, and that he is going to die for the sins of the world. So we got to, last week, because I got sidetracked, we got down to verse 14 in chapter 1. So we're going to start up there again this morning. So 14 and 15, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus' message is the same as John the Baptist. Repent and repent and believe the gospel. So he's saying you, repent means to turn. So turn from your sin and turn toward Christ. Believe the gospel. And he, he, the gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 15, the first few verses. So he's saying that this is believing the gospel, is that repenting, turning from your sin, turning toward the truth about Christ. Um, believe means more than just a mental acknowledgement, but it is a trust, a scent, and a following. It is that you are committed to this truth. That's what believe 
actually made. There are a lot of people. And in fact, in Mark's God, we're going to see that the devils, the demons, they, they believe in Jesus. They know who he is. Uh, they're, they're fearful of him. But, but they don't trust in him for salvation. And so, that, so it's more than just a mental ascent. It is that you commit your life in, in belief to him. So then he calls the first disciples. And um, when we read this in verse 16, 17, we, we know there's more to it than this. There's more to the story. But Mark's just making his point. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Then immediately left, they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee on, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So... Um, there had to be previous encounters, and you read the other Gospels, you see that there are previous encounters with these men. So they had heard Jesus speak, they had pro- listened to his proclamation, had heard about him, had seen some of the miracles he had done at this point. But when he called them to follow him, so he's calling them to discipleship. He is saying he's calling them to a ministry, he, and he's promising them. I will make you become fishers of men. He's calling them to a training, uh, to follow him, to, to give up their occupation and to follow him. And they have assented. They're doing that. Uh, it's really amazing. Here they've already seen some conflict uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees, and he, uh, but, but they're still willing to commit. They know it's going to cost them something. They know it's going to cost them financially as they leave their, their fishing. And evidently they're prosperous because here one of them's dad had servants that were helping. And so they evidently were doing good. Peter owned a home that was big enough to hold the disciples that when they met together in his home. And so you, you have to understand that it, it cost them something socially probably and financially to follow Jesus. and But they ascended to do that. So then we read in verse 29. Um, oh, nope, we skipped over. All right. So verse 21. Verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately, there's the word again, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Jesus was acknowledged as a, as a teacher, and in the synagogue system, when someone came in, and if they were acknowledged to be a rabbi or acknowledged by someone who knew them that they were a teacher, they would be allowed to speak. And so when Jesus went into the synagogue, he um, began to speak. He entered the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished, verse 22, at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue who had an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus, verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. 
Then there were then they were all amazed, so they so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So as we read that, it's very obvious that they saw him speak with authority. They had listened to other rabbis. They had listened to probably the leader of the synagogue, the local leader of the local synagogue. And, but they recognized something different in, in Jesus. He, he had authority. He didn't, he didn't speak and teach like other rabbis. There was something different about him, and the authority was the authority of the Word of God. It was whatever he, whatever he spoke was the Word of God. And, and they realized there was a difference, not even knowing that he was God, but they realized that there's someone here we listen to. And, and so it was very impactful for the people who were listening to him that day expound and teach the Word of God. They would have, their practice would, they would have read a portion of the Old Testament and then they would expound it. The teacher would expound a portion of the Old Testament that they had. So when they, when they heard him, um, it, it was just a, it was a strong, strong reaction. And then immediately after that, he goes into Peter's house. Verse 29, now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and they told him about her at once. I want to stop there and say it's very evident Simon Peter was married. And, and the, the Catholic religion, again, I'm not slamming them, it's telling you what they believe. They believe he wasn't, and so they don't accept this statement. They don't believe he was married because they believe that uh, he was the first pope and all the other popes are, are descendant from him and they can't marry and so they deny this. But uh, somehow Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law and he was in his house and it was his mother-in-law and you don't get a mother-in-law unless you get the benefit of a wife. That wouldn't be fair. So, <laughs> okay, where were we? So, but Simon, verse 30, Simon's mother lay sick of a fever, and they, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the healing was instantaneous, and it was complete. Uh, if, if you've been sick of a fever, and in this day, there, there was a common practice of treating fevers. It was like a three-day process. But if you've been sick of a fever, when, you're, when your fever breaks, you're still weak. We, we know that. You're still weak, and you need a, probably a time of recovery. You don't get up and take on your full duties like you've done before. Or at least you shouldn't and probably wouldn't in, in our society. So this healing was complete and instantaneous, and, and, and she felt well enough to serve them. And it's really interesting. A lot of people today who teach healings do not understand scriptural healing. Jesus' healing was complete, and it was thorough, and it restored a person to the vitality of life, and that cannot be done today. 
And when, when I was young in the ministry, there were people who taught me about in reading, not taught me here, but and not taught me in, in college, but in reading, uh, there are people who said that we should be like Jesus. We should do the thing that Jesus does because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And just a week or two ago, when we talked about John the Baptist, we talked about that Jesus said that you'll do greater works than John does. But Jesus was talking about the gospel, that we have the full authority of the gospel, and we're going to proclaim the gospel to the world. John couldn't do that. But he wasn't talking about, and in fact, you read John 10, John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest man born of woman, and he was full of the Holy Spirit from his birth. But then in John 10, it says he never did a miracle. So where's the emphasis? The emphasis is not on his miracles, but on his teaching. He didn't do a miracle. But yet he was a great man full of the Holy Spirit. And so what you learn from the scripture is that Jesus did these great works of healing for the purpose of authenticating his ministry and authenticating who he claimed to be. And when you come and think, well, we have the Holy Spirit, and Jesus did it through the power of the Holy Spirit, so why don't we not do it? And the reason why is that we are not Christ. We, we are not Jesus. We, we are given the Holy Spirit to understand his word and follow him, not to do the works that he did. We have the Bible printed and, and authenticated to authenticate our ministry and our proclamation of the gospel. So here, when he healed her, again, you're going to see that through the book of Mark. It was complete. It was instantaneous. It was at his word. There was no laying on the hands. There was no, I mean, he, he lifted her up. He touched her, lifted her up. But there wasn't the ceremony of laying on the hands or any formula. He just healed her. I think that's significant if you watch much television and see some of the stuff that goes on on television. So where are we? Okay. Uh, Now we come to verse 32, and there's a public healing. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick and various, with various diseases and cast out many demons, but he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. You, you wonder why Jesus didn't allow demons to testify to him. And I believe that you deduct from Scripture when he does that over and over is that he did not want the demonic world to authenticate who he was. He, he wanted the... Old Testament and his word and his works to authenticate who he was. He didn't need the demonic world, and he didn't want to give them the credibility that they uh, sought. So, but he healed those who came to him and those who were demon possessed. And when when we read in verse uh, thirty five, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go to the next town, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. So his purpose coming forth wasn't healing of all the sick. 
It wasn't casting out all the demons that were there, but what his purpose was, was what? To preach the gospel. For this is why I have come forth, he said. He came forth to proclaim the gospel, the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived, salvation by grace is available, the promise of Jeremiah 31 that the spirit would be given and that you'd have a new heart, this was why he came. It's more important than the physical aspects. Sometimes when we're struggling in the flesh, we don't sense that. Uh, and we as a class and as a church and in your family, and in my, we have struggled in the flesh with COVID. It's really, been, it's really been a scourge in our world, not just in our society, but in our world. And, and we have struggled in the flesh with that and, and probably will continue to do so. I'm not a prophet. I'm just saying that it looks like it's going to continue to some degree uh, for some time. And many of us may struggle more as time goes on. But, you know, there's something more important than that, and that's our eternal soul. This life is temporary. It's like a vapor that appears and then passes away. It's like the grass that comes up in one day and, 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 and burns up and is gone. Our life is like that, and, and our soul is eternal. And, and we need to be, when, when we look, I'm just giving you pastoral advice. When we look at the issues in our life, whether it's COVID or whether it's something else, when we're dealing with the issues in our life, we should remember, I am an eternal creation of God. I'm going to dwell with him forever through the blood of Christ. And that's more significant. So that should give me grace. Not, not to, it, it doesn't take away my pain, and it doesn't take away my insecurity about the future. It doesn't take away any of those things. But what it should do, it, it should give me hope and grace to endure. Christ allowed the curse of sin, and the curse of sin ravages us sometimes. And, and, and I'm not talking about necessarily our sin, but the curse of sin upon the world. I mean, New Orleans is waiting for this hurricane, and Louisiana, I should say, not more than New Orleans. They're waiting for this hurricane that's coming in t- tonight or uh, today or tonight. And, 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 you know, and there's just things you can't deal with in life. You can't control, and, but you have to trust God. You just have to say, I'm, I'm a child of God. I belong to him. He adopted me into his family. And I, I may suffer, but we're like Job, that in my flesh I shall see him. One day I'm going to stand in his presence, and all these things are behind me. That has to be our hope. And so let me encourage you, let me encourage you in that. Jesus hasn't promised to heal us. He promised us eternal life. He promised us uh, salvation. And, and that is a greater promise. So, Mark is just making, Mark is going from event to event, and he's teaching us who Christ is and, 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 and all that he is. And now look at verse 35, but we're already past that. Where are we? Okay, verse 40. Okay, now to a leper. Now, a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. 
And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you not say anything to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Leprosy was a scourge that could not be healed. Leprosy had, there was no healing of leprosy. And leprosy, when you go back to Leviticus chapter 5, and the Lord gave some instruction concerning leprosy. I think it's really interesting. And one of the things he says, you are to isolate that person. Now think with me, COVID, you're to isolate that person and a man was to cover his mustache. And, and we don't like that, do we? I'm sure the leper didn't like that either. And the Talmud, now not the Bible, but the Talmud, we're going to talk more about it in chapter 2, but the Talmud said that in this process of evaluation by a priest that Leviticus lays out, that the man or woman who was being evaluated for leprosy had to remain at least six foot from anybody else. Dr. Fauci was alive <laughs> then. <laughs> Isn't that interesting to you? And if they had, if, and if the priest determined over these periods of testing, there were very periods of testing, that this was leprosy, then you were totally isolated from your family, from the town, 150 foot from anyone else unless they also were a confirmed leper and then you could have association with them. So it's really interesting. Cover your mustache, man. How do you cover your mustache? You put something over your mouth and, uh, and then they had to go around, if they were designated leper, saying unclean, unclean. <clears throat> so we go around saying COVID, COVID. <clears throat> and I'm not making fun. I just thought that was very interesting. I'm going to send that to my grandson. I've got a grandson going to a Christian college, and he's adamant that they don't, he doesn't want them to make him wear a mask. I'm going to tell him the Lord designed that for his, for his benefit. So. <clears throat> I don't think that's funny, but I don't think COVID's funny. I, don't think, I just thought that was very interesting. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 5 if you want to, if you want to look it up. You won't find that what the Talmud says there, but you find about the isolation and the covering your mustache. <clears throat> so now back to the leper. The okay, I'm gonna, that's in chapter 2. I'm going to tell you. Okay, let me just tell you now. Okay, the Talmud is the Jewish people had the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of Moses. And, and, then, they, and, and then Moses' law contains 613 regulation. So when Moses' law, if, if you read through um, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you're, you're going to find that there's more than the Ten Commandments, but there's these regulations for living, just like this concerning, uh, concerning leprosy. So there's regulations for living, there's regulations that uh, control uh, diet for the Jews, there's regulations that control um, marriages, there's regulations that just control their, their sanitation habits. You know, you think about it for a moment. Um, there's a little book written. I can't think of the author's name, but the title of the book is called All These Diseases or None of These Diseases. And, and so the Lord gave the nation of Israel 
a, a health regulation. He, he, he talked to them about what you could eat, what you could not eat, how that you treated someone who was sick and you isolated yourself. And he, he talked about to them about purification rights. And, and those things had a health benefit. The world didn't have that. But the Lord gave that to them for their physical benefit. It's really interesting if you look at it from that standpoint. And so what happened out of those 613 regulations that you can find in the law, and somebody numbered them, but the Jewish people had to learn them. They learned them. But then there are questions about them. So there are questions about, okay, exactly what does that mean? If you're to keep the Sabbath, what does that mean? If you're to keep the Sabbath holy, so there began to be oral tradition. Okay, or they, they had the, 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 the Torah was written, the first five books of the book was written in, in their early history. They had that. But now there's this oral tradition. And the oral tradition had this explanation about the law, had an explanation about those tenets of the law. So like on the Sabbath keeping, how, and we're, again, we're going to see that in chapter 2, about Sabbath keeping, how, how, do you, how do you keep the Sabbath? Then if you're to keep the Sabbath, what can you do? What you, basically, the scripture says, you, you work six days and then you rest, and that rest is a worship. Hebrews 7 teaches that rest for us is Christ. We rest from our works to be saved in Christ. And it was a symbol even of that. But how, so how do you keep What could you do? And so they had this whole litany of things that you could do, could not do. You couldn't lift a burden more than a few ounces. You couldn't travel more than a Sabbath day's journey, which was something like a quarter of a mile. You, you couldn't, uh, you, you couldn't, light a fire that was work you couldn't in chapter two we're going to see i'll just tell you about now in chapter two the the disciples go with jesus through a cornfield and they pluck the ears of corn which was legal to do if you went through so bad you could take what you wanted to eat personally it was legal to do that from somebody else's field and so they pluck the ears of corn and they you have to shut corn and uh you know that some you have to shut corn before you get it and, and the, the Pharisees decreed that that was harvesting and that that uh, was work. And, and they were violating the law. Okay, but so you had all this oral tradition. And it was called the Midrash and the Talmud. And, and if you were, when written, and it is written today, there are dozens of books that contain those. I mean, they're unlimited instructions. So the, rabbi, the, the Pharisees guarded that. The oral tradition became more important to many of them than, than the law itself. Um, again, it's chapter 2. So, okay, let's wait till we get to chapter 2. Jesus deals with that in chapter 2. But that's what the Talmud is. So the Talmud is the writing of the oral traditions written down. And um, let me just give you this in case you're not here. And we don't get to it in chapter 2. But you remember Jesus said, some of the, that, or, or he said, you say, or it is said, but I say unto you. It is said, but I say unto you. You remember that? And Jesus was saying, the tradition says, but I say unto you. And in chapter 2, he challenged the Pharisees. And he says, have you not read what the scripture says? 
See, what they did, they, they prided themselves on the law. And, and the law was all this that the Talmud had. It was all these regulations um, about the law. And Jesus was saying the scripture is higher than that. The scripture is what truth is. It's not all that external stuff, but it's the scripture itself. And so it's really interesting. That was the battle uh, for the Pharisees were the keepers of that law. They, they prided themselves on being uh, the keeper of all those rules and regulations. And it made them arrogant, and it made them prideful, and it made them hypocritical. And, uh, but, they, um, but it gave them status as well. And uh, so they had to guard their status. So here we go, and when he touches this leper... And no one would touch a leper because if you touched a leper, you would become ceremonially unclean, which means you couldn't go to the temple, you couldn't worship, you, you had to go through this isolation process yourself. But Jesus touched him and he healed him. And he said, verse 4, I am willing, be cleansed. And then he instructed this leper to go to the priest and fulfill all righteousness. You remember last week we looked at Jesus' baptism. Jesus wasn't a sinner. He didn't need to show repentance from his sin by baptism, but he wanted to fulfill all righteousness. We have an obligation to the, to the public to live out our Christian testimony. We have an obligation to, to, to present Christ in a matter that is consistent with Scripture. You and I have that obligation. Um, we owe to the Lord. I see. I, I think the church, that, that not forsaking the assembling yourself together. Now, I'm not talking about if you're sick or you're worried about COVID not to come. I'm not talking about that. But, I, but I'm talking about I have an obligation to be a part of a local assembly. Now, it doesn't have to be this assembly. It could be one down the street. But I have an obligation to do that. I have an obligation to support it. I have an obligation to, particip- to participate. I, I have an obligation. See, again, that's why Jesus said, you go to the priest and you offer what the law of Moses commands. And it's a testimony. And we have a testimony to, to keep as well. So I'm making, I'm making pastoral applications to these things for you. But isn't that, isn't that why we're here? But the man didn't do it. However, verse 45, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in desert places, and they came to him from every area. It's really interesting here to me, I think, that some people said this is the portrait of the gospel. Here, here, was, here was this leper, and he was an outcast, and, and Jesus was in the city surrounded by crowds, and Jesus takes his place. Jesus, in healing him, which is a portrait of salvation, it's a physical portrait of a spiritual reality, so in healing him, now Jesus is outside the city because he can't dwell in the city, and the leper is in the city telling everyone what has happened to him. See, that's the portrait. Jesus took my place, he took your place on the cross, and we now are free, and he suffered outside the camp. I think it's interesting when we read that, that Christ was willing to do that for us. Okay, now go to chapter 2. And we'll do this, probably won't get through it as well. 
And again, he entered Capernaum after some days. We don't know how many days, but probably a period of time. He had gone through this preaching tour, as he said earlier, was go to the other towns, and that's why I came. So now he enters Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Whose house? Maybe Peter's house. Again, I think probably it was Peter's house. And immediately men had gathered together so that there were no longer room to receive them, not even at the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bearing a paralytic who was carried by four men, and when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Then Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Really, really interesting. So, the Pharisees are guardians of the oral law. They're guardians of this body of rules. It's just a body of rules. It's a body of the, all the interpretation, all the minutia of interpretation about the law of Moses. And, and they're guardians of it. And, and they're very pious. They, they, they made it known to the people. They dressed differently. They acted differently. They... Uh, for us, it's like a fast, and fasting is in chapter 2, but uh, fasting is only commanded one day a week, or the Day of Atonement, one day a, a year. That's the only requirement for a Jew to fast. But they fasted every Monday, every Thursday, and they made it public, they did. They acted like they were fasting. They acted like, you know, that they're, I mean, they were proud that they were doing this on behalf of the Lord, and you common people didn't do that. And so you sinners didn't do that. We're the Pharisees. We or the elite in this society. And so it's really interesting that here, when they bring this man, sometimes we get interested in, the, if you're teaching children, you talk about the roof, and, you know, as they tear it up, the mud falls down, and, you know, and you're thinking, what's going on? And they're no longer paying attention. The very first time I ever went to a children's camp, when I was, when I was first saved, Don and I, first year we were saved, we volunteered to go, as counselors to a children's camp, took our vacation from the job, <clears throat> and and so to us it was a paid vacation. Except we didn't get paid, but 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 they did pay our expenses. We got to sleep in a in a bunk, and so <clears throat> and 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 eat that food, and and deal with those children all day and all night, and 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 so what happened? The, the very first time we went, and and uh, man, we were excited. We went with three other couples our age. And, and it was one of the highlights of our lives to that point. Wasn't it, Donna? It was one of the highlights of our life to that point, that week. And on about the, the first night, a bird flew in the auditorium. <laughs> and, you know, it was outdoors, the doors were open, and this bird flew into the auditorium. And, and we were watching it. It was exciting. You know, here's this bird. That may be the Holy Spirit. You know, he just fly, he's flying around. <laughs> <laughs> and the preacher was a salty old guy. I mean, he was a salty old guy, and I don't know how old he was. Probably wouldn't have been about 50, but he looked old, and he talked old, and, and he hammered on that pulpit, and he said, if any one of you raise your eyes and look at that bird again, I don't think he told us we're going to go to hell, but he wanted us to believe we would. <clears throat> and that bird flew around the rest of that evening, but nobody looked. <laughs> nobody looked. On the second night, 
I want to get my story straight, but I think it was the second night. A, a girl playing tennis. She was from Albuquerque. We were at a camp up by Albuquerque. A, a, a table tennis. A girl playing table tennis fell over dead. And it, and it changed. It changed everything, as you can imagine. I mean, here we are isolated up there, probably three or 400 of us, and she fell over dead. Now, all the ambulances and all the, you know, is it, is it true? What happened? And, you know, so it's just a, but, and, and I, I think the pastor, whoever was speaking, I don't remember who the speaker was. I think they handled it very well, and, but, it, but it was very serious and challenged us about this is eternity we're dealing with. And, uh, but, now, why was I telling you that story? I guess the bird came in, and so, <laughs> and, and so, what what happens is that when you when you're thinking about the Word of God and you're thinking about the power of God, you're thinking about um, the authority of God, and it's being challenged by the world. Grace is always challenged by works. Grace is always challenged by legalism. Grace is challenged. See, see, grace is, it's all of God, none of me. And, and our human nature doesn't like that. Our human nature wants, I want to be approved of God because I have something good within me. I, I want to show to God through my keeping these rules that I'm worthy of his salvation. That's our nature. And we, and we do that. We do that as well. Uh, that's our nature. We're tempted to do that as well. We're tempted to, to, to feel like, okay, if I went to church, I deserve grace. And and no, no, we we go to church because we've been given grace. If I, we think, okay, I I gave and I gave extra, so I deserve grace, and I deserve recognition. And the Pharisees did that. They stood on the street corner and prayed and and. And, and, and they, they did that, and the Lord counseled us against doing that. But they did that to be recognized. They're thinking, if I do these things, I deserve grace. I'm deserving of it by what I do. And, and that's what you're going to see through the Gospels, all of them, not just Mark. And, and Jesus is opposed to that, and we're to be opposed to that. So what happens here when Jesus healed this leper... Uh, or this man, and he, he said to him, first, your sins are forgiven you, and it irritated the Pharisees. And they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's a true statement. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer is nobody can. And Jesus was God, and he had the authority to do it, but they couldn't see that. See, they thought he was blaspheming God by saying your sins are forgiven you. And so... Verse 6, that's when some of the scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus, showing that he was God, did this. But immediately, verse 8, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? He read their mind. He read their mind. He knew what was in their heart. And then he said, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? And we answered that question, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. 
Because no one can see that. No one knew that to be true. No one but Jesus knew that to be true. I, I can say that to some person. Uh, I dealt with a man Wednesday night during the Wednesday night service <coughs> who, who, who told me he wanted to be saved. And, and in the end, I'm not sure that he did. But, you know, so what happens is that, and I'm just giving you my opinion, I, but, but what happens is that we can say that, but who can know that a person's really saved? So Jesus is asking them, so who, you, you don't believe that that's true, and who can say it? So is it easier to say, take him to bed and walk with it? Oh, that's pretty hard. You can't just heal a person. I mean, it's, it's hard to say to someone, just take up your bed and walk. This man had been a paralytic, which means that he hadn't walked. And had he been gotten better, it would have taken months of rehabilitation for him to walk. Some of us know that, who've had surgeries in our knees and things. And, and so when Jesus was showing them personally, presently, I am God. I am God. Only God can do this. I am God. And so he said to them in, uh, in verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So when Jesus did that, the people around him were amazed and glorified God, except for the Pharisees, except for the Pharisees. Okay, uh, very quickly now. He calls Levi, Matthew, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. He passed by, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, setting at a tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. It's just so interesting. We, we read that and we think, mm, okay, so now that's the call of Levi. But think about the rest of the disciples. They were fishermen. Matthew is a, he is the tax collector. And they hated the tax collectors because just like Zacchaeus, uh, later when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. You know why? Because he had cheated them out of it. And that's how he had gotten his goods. He had cheated them out of it. And, and the tax collector, for the most part, did that. And, and so and he did it at the Sea of Galilee. And he did it to James and John and Andrew and Peter. When they brought it in their hall, he made them pay taxes. And he got a cut of it. He made them pay Roman taxes. And he got a cut of it, of everything. And they probably hated him. And now Jesus calls him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus calls him. And he, and, he, and he calls him, and, and, and then we're going to go on in chapter 2, and the Pharisees are going to talk to Jesus. I'm just give you a summary. The Pharisees are going to talk to Jesus. They, they go to Matthew's house. Matthew throws a party. I guess it's Matthew's house. It doesn't say, but Matthew throws a party, and his friends come, the publicans and the sinners. So the other tax collectors and other sinners come, and Jesus eats with them, he and his disciples, and the disciples probably went in thinking, oh my, what are we doing here? You know, and I mean, the people are really going to hate us. Nobody's going to follow Jesus if he messes with all these people. I mean, we're not really educated, but we're not sinners like these people who, who've robbed us. And, but they, they go in, and the Pharisees condemn him. And then Jesus says this in verse 17. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the sinners, but I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, Jesus, I want to read to you what G. Campbell Morgan said. He has a superb statement. He said, here there is a gentle satire and a great compassion. These verses show that these self-satisfied men, the Pharisees, who will by no means consent to be counted among the sinners, are taking at their own evaluation. Yet Christ knew their sickness and so was willing to heal them. To resent that finding is to put ourselves outside the number of those to whom the Son of God calls. Jesus said, if you say you're righteous, I didn't come to speak to you. If you evaluate yourself as righteous, you don't need a Savior. You're judging yourself to not need me. And that's what most of the world does today. Most of the world, when they hear the gospel, reject it because we don't believe we're sinners in need of a Savior. You know, we know we're not perfect. I did that for years, not being saved until I was about 25. I did that. I I knew about Christ. I knew about his death. I didn't believe I needed a Savior. I, I didn't always think about it in those terms. I just rejected what I heard and not and didn't and didn't humble myself before God. And that's what they're doing, and that's what a lot of men does. And so what Jesus is doing, he's rebuking the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, at one time, he's going to be in a boat with his disciples, and he said, beware of the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and they were thinking about, or he said, beware of the bread. And then later he said, I'm talking to you about the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what is the doctrine that describes serve? It's self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. It's that I'm worthy of grace. I'm worthy of forgiveness. I'm, I'm worthy to stand before God uh, on my own. I'm just going to give you a summation of, 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 what, we, of what we have here. And, um, I, and, then, and then we'll be done for the day. And Since we won't be here next week, I want to just give you a summation of chapter 2. And Jesus goes on and he says to them, um, the Pharisees challenged him about fasting in verse 18 through 20. And he said, they're with the bridegroom. And if you're with the bridegroom and you're, you're with the, and Jesus is the bridegroom of the church, who's the bride. And if you're with the bridegroom, you don't, you, don't, you don't fast during that time. So Jesus is saying, there's a time for fasting, but this is not the time for fasting. When I go away, there'll be a time for fasting. And I'll say to you today, Fasting it may be beneficial to you, and it's not compulsory to your salvation. Uh, it's, not, it's not compulsory. There have been times in the history of our church that we have asked the church to fast on a certain day. If you're able, if you're physically able, your doctor says it's okay, you know, because the church had decisions to make. And, and, I, and I think that's good, and I think that's legitimate. And maybe you yourself. Uh, one of the men of our church told me the other day that he had a decision to make, and he said, I, I prayed and I fasted. And I think that's legitimate. I, I think it's good. But again, you, you, don't, you don't do it for, to gain grace with God. You do it to show you have grace. We do it to show our dependence upon God. We say, God, I love you more than I, than I love the taste of food. And I, I, want to, I need you more than I need the taste of food during this time. It, it's, not, it's not to be sustained. Uh, but it, it may be occasional occurrence. But... It doesn't give you grace. 
It is a reflection of grace that has been given to you. That's what Jesus tells them about the bridegroom. And then he says this in verse 21, 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece puts, pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one pulls, puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskin. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. There's a couple of ways, I think, applications for that. I think one is that he's saying you cannot add Christianity to Judaism. I think that's what he's saying. I think it's an application of what he's saying. You can't add Christianity. Christianity came as as an outflow of Judaism, but, but Judaism is over. It is over. It is finished. When Christ came, it's finished. And, and the Jews wouldn't quit it, so the Lord at some point destroyed the temple. So it is over, and it is fulfilled, it, it served its purpose, it's done. But I also think that it has another application for us personally in the sense who, who've never been Jews and didn't practice Judaism. It is that you cannot mix grace and self-righteousness. And that's what I've been saying to you all morning. You cannot, you, you, you cannot... You can't take the old skin of your behavior and your wanting to justify yourself and patch Christ into that. You can't do that. It will it will not work. And and so you have to depend on grace alone. It's grace alone, and and not our self righteousness. This is what they've been dealing with with the Pharisees. Is what he's going to deal with the Pharisees was with self righteousness, and he keeps saying to them, "You you just can't." do that. So then I mentioned to you about them going through the grain field. That's in verse 23. They plucked the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, verse 24, why do they do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? Have you never read? He's going to say that more than once to them. Have you never read? Have you never read? And he's saying to them, the scripture is more important than your oral traditions. The, the scripture is where you find truth. The scripture is the basis of your knowledge of God. It's the basis of your knowledge of yourself. It's the basis of your knowledge uh, of salvation. Okay. Um, the last verse, he, he went into the house of God. How he, Talking about David, how he went in the house of God in the days of Abathur the high priest and, the, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. So he said, David, in essence, broke what you consider to be the Sabbath law. David, your hero, David who established Israel, put him on the mount, David who wrote most of your songbook, David broke in your way of thinking, he broke the Sabbath. But God approved him. God allowed that. The priests allowed that to take place. And then Jesus makes this great, powerful statement at the end of this chapter. And he says in verse 27, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. When we studied Hebrews in here, I think it's Hebrews 7. I didn't write it down. But I think in Hebrews 7, it's when you talk about the Sabbath rest. Is that Israel never found their rest. And, and the Sabbath day was to be a day of rest that you acknowledge that God is your provider. God is your Savior. God's your creator. 
And, and you can imagine the seventh year for the nation of Israel, they didn't plow, they didn't plant, they weren't supposed to, but they ended up doing it anyway. And, but they were to say, God will be our provider this whole year. He'll be our provider. And, and so we will take what's there and, and the residue, but we will not plow, we will not plant this seventh year because God is our provider. And they wouldn't do it every 50th year on the Jubilee. And God wanted them to know, I am your provider. I am the one who is your sustainer in this life. And here he is saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man. So in Hebrews 7, it says that it is our rest. Christ died for us, and he is our rest for salvation. We trust only in him, only in him, and in nothing else. And then he makes this great statement in verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So, so what he's saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man who created the Sabbath is Lord over the Sabbath. It's not the oral tradition, but it's the Son of Man who determines these things. In the notes I'm going to send you, I put just a little note at the end of this. The Pharisees' anger toward the Lord was because his teaching threatened their position of control over the common people. And then in parentheses, and possibly made them feel insecure. So when, you're, when their position was threatened, they feel insecure, and our fear causes us to react in anger. Most anger is a reaction of fear. Now, what do we fear? We fear our position to be threatened. We fear, uh, uh, we, we, we fear not being acknowledged. We fear not being valued. We fear... Uh, being disrespected, we fear that we're not getting our fair share. We fear we fear all these things, and we we react in, in anger, um, and and that's not justified. And the Lord's teaching us that. The Lord's teaching us our rest is in Christ. We we trust in Him. It's grace and grace alone. Well, our time's up. Pray with me, and when we come back in a couple of weeks, we'll go to chapter three. Our Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, help us trust in you only. Lord, we are people with our preconceived notions about how life should work and how the church should work and how other people should work. And Lord, but help us to recognize that your word gives us direction and only your word. And Lord, you're the one who gives grace and you're the one we're to look to. And Lord, let us live without fear of being threatened because we know you as Savior and as Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, Lord bless you. We'll see you in church. Hope you have a great uh, Labor Day weekend.